and welcome to the second episode of the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. Happy to have you back as we continue our journey, gaining insights on leadership during a crisis through weekly interviews with 10 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations as they navigate their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, we recorded the first episode of our podcast in mid-April. Since then, Peter Willis and his team have completed two rounds of interviews with our participants. Our plan was to come back to you with another podcast episode in about a month's time, so mid-May, with insights from the first four rounds of interviews. But as with everything else during this pandemic, we've had to change our plans, this time for good reason. We were getting so many interesting insights already, we couldn't hold on to them for a month, so we're going to do these podcasts weekly moving forward. I spoke to Peter on the 28th of April and asked him to reflect on some of the insights gained from the interview so far, and I'm delighted to share some snippets of our conversation. It's a meandering conversation, and you might hear some notification sounds in the background, but I hope you'll find the sheer quality of insights we've gained from our participants in only a couple of weeks just as fascinating as I did. We would be remiss if we didn't share these insights with you, and the team felt the same. So, without further ado, here we go. Hi, Peter. How are you today? Hey, Seth. I'm really well, and you? Well, I'm hanging in there in this brave new world that we find ourselves in, and um, I'm excited to kind of kick off round two of the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast with you. Me too. So, Peter, you've had a a pretty busy week, haven't you? I have, yes. Um, I I began the week with four of our participants already in place and having interviewed them the previous week. Uh, We didn't podcast about that, but we're sort of rolling them into this round two week. And uh, then the rest of the participants have been coming on board fairly rapidly. So we've now got a pretty full complement. And I've interviewed eight out of our 10. And I'm about to interview the ninth a little later today. I was just curious, as, um, as this is kind of getting rolling, I mean, this is, is a, new, a new approach to doing this. And, and some of the challenges we were facing is, can we really get these senior level people at such, criti- at a, such a critical time in such important organizations and or cities? And, and, you know, can we get that time? Will they be focused? And it's turning out that we can. So you just mentioned we're about to do nine out of 10. So it, it's working, yeah. it's happening. Yeah, oh, it is. No, definitely. And I'm, I'm really taken with how keen they are. They all grasp the, the opportunity that we're putting in front of them to, to share their own perspectives on what's going on and each other's perspectives. So, yeah, we're getting off to a real pacey start. One of the things I was really curious to talk to you about today is who you're interviewing. And I know there was some sensitivity around this, right? Getting people in leadership positions, dealing with really sensitive issues in terms of business continuity, HR, legal uh, ramifications, financial ramifications, a lot of sensitivity around transparency, anonymous, you know, and and how do we get that information, but keep these individuals and these organizations safe? How is that manifesting itself? Well, as you know, we took a very precautious stance uh, when we set up the project and we've communicated that to all the participants. So um, what we do is we share with them, and we've done this for two weeks now, um, we share with them a reasonably detailed summary of the insights that have come out of the interviews of that week. And in that summary, we don't anonymize, so they can see who else from within the group is sharing what insight. And the feedback I get from them is that they find that really interesting. 
And then when we put something uh, of a distillation of those insights onto the website, and we call that weekly learnings, and similarly in this conversation you and I are having, uh, our agreement with them is that we don't mention their names or their organizations so that they are encouraged to speak freely in the interviews and not worry that they might have lawyers breathing down their necks and so on. Well, can you give a little insight in terms, mm. of, in terms of who you are speaking with? I've got four private sector uh, senior executives, one in Europe, one in Australia, two in the US, um, all working in large multinational organizations. Uh, one working in a, a large multinational um, development finance organization, and then five are chief resilience officers from large cities, one in Europe, one in Asia, one in the Americas, uh, what, sorry, one in North America, one in South America, and one in Africa. Yeah, really good geographical spread then too. Mm-hmm. Yes, which of course is fascinating because um, the because of the way the pandemic has moved, um, they're all at slightly different stages in the unfolding of it. And of course, we've got some parts of the world and some countries where they've got on top of it faster, and others where they've you know it's run away. So I think, although everybody, it, my sense is that whereas everybody in the world starts off with oh. We've got a problem that's locked down, and then you sit there locked down for a few weeks and see how it's going. So it's very similar all around the world. I think very soon we're going to start to see different countries moving at very different paces towards reopening. Uh, and reopening is, uh, by the way, the, the thing that's on my interviewee's lips this last week. It wasn't um, previous two weeks when I was speaking to them, but it's now starting to be the big issue. Fascinating. Yeah. And you can, you can kind of see, you can see the world kind of caught up and when are we going to get back to things and, and how is that going to, how is that going to work? Um, yes. Do, are you, I'm curious out of the people that you're speaking to, as you were mentioning in different parts of the world and being struck by the pandemic at different points in time, were they pretty consistently all talking about reopening or was this only in specific pockets? Um, I would say my African interviewee was least focused on reopening. I mean, it has to be said that the the chief resilience officers, it's an an interesting dynamic. Uh, They take their direction, I think this is uniformly the case, uh, they they take national government direction as to when and to what degree reopening is possible, just like they took national direction on lockdown. And as one of them was saying to me, uh, the problem that you face in a city government is that you you can't determine the the pace of the locking down or the unlocking. You have to pick up the pieces and and deal with the consequences and get everything ready so that when you do start to unlock, um, you don't get into terrible further problems. But he he also said, well, th- there's a the good side to that is that that's at least one big problem you don't have on your plate. There are plenty of others, but um, we're all really glad in this city that we don't have that awful decision to make. And speaking of awful decisions, a lot of the people I know that you're talking to carry quite a significant level of responsibility for their respective organizations or cities. Are you seeing any of that personal weight uh, Mm. in terms of decision-making and responsibility for large organizations or, or 
our governments. Is that coming through in any of these conversations at all? It is, but more at a subtle level than than in any kind of blatant complaint or, oh my goodness, I don't think I can handle this. It's just so much responsibility. Although I'm sitting um, at my computer talking to them on Zoom, and in some cases I'm thinking, wow, am I glad I don't have to make that decision? <laughs> right. Uh, so, but these are people who have, you know, have developed in their careers into positions of leadership where it's part of what they live and breathe. But there was one uh, interviewee who he had been through a, a previous quite severe crisis uh, in his city not that long ago, and he had had played a very responsible role in that. And um, he said that uh, what that gave me was at least when these feelings of being overwhelmed uh, and afraid arrive, I at least know, ah, this comes with the territory of leading in a crisis. So get over it and move through. And by implication, I was assuming that the first time around when he was involved in the previous crisis, he didn't have that to hang on to. And it was his first major crisis as a leader. And I suspect he suffered more as a result. So he's, he's feeling a lot more robust for having been through, and notably, his team also have been through it with him. So that he says they've got some kind of a shorthand now, which I thought was interesting. So they could move at much greater speed than some of the teams that they're in contact with. It's interesting to think about leadership and how you know, leaders are, are they made or are they born? Mm. And, and to your point, you're kind of raising, you know, maybe it's a little of both, maybe, maybe it's separate, but this idea of being battle tested is yes. quite interesting in the example that you just gave. And it's also interesting that so much of the, what we're hearing around the world in terms of uh, governments and companies and individuals, it's wartime analogies. So the concept yes. of, of being prepared by going through this before, but obviously not everybody can have those same experiences. So then how do you learn from others that have in real time? So I was curious, are you seeing any threads in, ter- in terms of leadership style in, in terms of people are, are kind of, they've risen to the top of their respective organizations because they have an innate ability to be prepared and to be resilient? Or is it because they've, they're, because they've got a lot of experience and they've learned how to do this along the way? I think it's both, Seth. I think um, there's, I mean, you and I know people who uh, just love to step forward and wade into difficulties. They've got a high adrenaline scale so that they can very quickly go from calm to what's got to be done here? How do we do it? Who's going to help me? Where do we go? And so on. Um, Whereas many others, I would say the majority um, have a higher level of sort of anxiety when they're threatened. Um, I mean, hey, this is, I don't want to get into pop psychology here. You, you asked about leadership uh, in this setting of the, the, the pandemic where there's so much uncertainty. And they, what I'm picking up from them is that uh, they are demonstrating and they realize they have to demonstrate that they have the care of their people, that's their employees, absolutely front and center. Mm. And they are, what's been interesting is one or two stories I've been told of particular ways they've thought of to communicate that, you know, in a way that is unmistakable to their people. 
and they realize that particularly because people are working from home and so they can't, you know, all bunch of them gather around the water cooler and say, you know, what do we think of the way we're being led? It's all people sitting at their own desks at home. So I'm really interested, Peter, in, in hearing from you um, in terms of how this leadership is, is emerging. So we are kind of touching on, on whether it's, you know, baptism by fire, whether it's through experience, whether it's, it's through kind of the innate ability to step forward and lead. But what's, what's interesting is that we're seeing around the world that leadership is coming in, in the shape of many forms. Um, and it's not just your mm. traditional leadership and the people we're talking to. It's also people on the front lines. And you, you were mentioning a lot of people working from home. Lo- lots of staff are also keeping critical services open in cities. They're working in, in factories and warehouses to keep supply chains moving that we might not know or see. So there's leadership being exhibited from both the top and the bottom of these organizations simultaneously. And it's really interesting, I think, how, how those are being interconnected or, and who's inspiring who in some cases um, and what people that you're talking to that are the, in the top of these organizations for the most part, how they are both leading and, and following some of their other staff who are, are kind of exhibiting leadership in their own right right now. What, what's the mix? Have you heard anything about that from your conversations to date? Yeah, this is a big canvas um, that we're painting on here, because as you say, leadership shows up all over the place when there is a real need. And that clearly is a real need now. Um, well, and just, and just yeah. to tease that out, Peter, as to your point, I mean, it's, there's also, it's also a, a significant level of trust, right? I mean, people at the front lines yeah. are trusting senior leadership of an organization that their, their payroll is going to be met, that they're taking care and putting procedures in place in real time to protect them. And, and the senior leadership needs to trust the, the people working from home, that, that they're working, mm-hmm. that they're doing their best, uh, that they're taking care of themselves, and they're trusting that these other people are going to continue showing up and, and operating yep. and, and maintaining critical services. So there's trust going in both directions here. Indeed. And, and, and I'll give you an example of both. The... From the top down, as it were, uh, an interesting, in fact, I've had two or three stories of this nature where when the top management team in these uh, companies is considering the question of uh, how and when might we reopen, obviously given what the government allows, but it clearly is going to allow reopening at some point, how on earth do we do that in a way that uh, actually works? And the the, the realization by these companies, I'm thinking of two companies in North America that have very big footprint of a number of businesses and offices dotted around the continent. And they realize they can't possibly command and control the opening process in each of these cities and states and, and offices and plants and so on. So they realize quickly, we're going to have to give a lot of um, license and freedom to maneuver to our local management teams and their staff. because Within a few weeks, all of our staff have become experts in, in how to protect themselves and their families from getting this virus. So with that determination to protect themselves, we can say to them, okay, you may now start to open up, but at your pace, you've got to decide whether it's safe to get on public transport, to go into this office building that we rent a couple of floors from a, a landlord who may or may not have good procedures in place and so on. We can't, we don't have insight into all of that. You work that out locally. So there you've got a very high level of trust and you have to trust your managers um, who have to trust that their workers are not 
just being work shy, but they're genuinely saying, I don't feel ready to come to work because of X, Y, and Z. On the other, the other way around, there's a whole, whole lot of decisions in that exact scenario where the people on the ground uh, have to believe that the decision makers back at head office are going to supply them with the right uh, kit if they need kit, are going to make, get the right clearances and support from local authorities if they, if they need that, and so on. And so what I'm hearing is that there is a, a much higher traffic of communication between the periphery and the center and a lot more letting go of formal procedures of permission granting and so on. Like we will, at the center will establish the criteria. You go ahead and do what you think is sensible and let us know. But um, and I think it actually helps that people are working at home now because they, um, they, they're not always on planes or in cars and so on, and they're able to be talked to by their people out in the periphery in a way that perhaps they couldn't before. And people, they're, um, they're telling me that their, their staff and their managers out in the field are really appreciating being, A, given that trust, and B, spoken to and communicated with more than they're used to from right. the center. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm curious now how this is playing out around this this emerging topic, as you mentioned, of reopening, right? Because now, mm. just as people have, and organizations and processes have started getting that trust and that balance of, about what we're doing, what they're doing now, how they're dealing with it, you're you're going to test that stress in trying to now figure out how to reopen. Bruce Lee had has this famous quote I love, and it's he says, "Knowing." is not enough. We must apply. Willingness is not enough. We must do. So we, we've just gotten to the point where many of these organizations have figured out, you know, they, they've gathered a lot of information, but now they need to apply it in a new, in a new way. And we're going to stress those, those relationships and, and that application. How, how is that bearing out in your conversations? Well, uh, listening to you and Bruce, uh, I'm uh, reminded of a conversation I had during the week with one of the chief resilience officers in one of the cities who was saying that he was hearing from citizens and civil society groups within his city that there's a lot of real nervousness about reopening the city for business after lockdown, part of which is uh, that a lot of employees are under pressure from employers, bosses, to get back to business because the bosses have lost huge, huge amounts of money and are quite understandably desperate to get back. And the, the workers are turning around and saying, listen, your, your financial security is not my priority right now. I am mortally afraid, particularly if they're in a city, which in this case is the case, where they've had quite a lot of deaths. And so what you, whereas the, the corporate leaders that I'm interviewing in parallel run companies or parts of companies that are have a deep culture of care for their people, which might make them sort of a bit of a minority out there in the global landscape. But I was thinking that the, there you've got the two types of company are on display. The ones who will say, you know, I need you back at work, never mind the consequences because I need the money. And others who are saying, look, you know, you must decide whether and when you're safe. Fascinating. And, and I was really curious about any insights that you might see from talking about companies who ultimately need to care 
yes, about their people, but they're a, a, a private company because they have to care about the bottom line. And in some cases, providing value back to mm. stockholders, shareholders. And then you've got the cities, which are responsible for health and well-being of their citizens. So two totally different drivers, but interesting to hear your reflections that it's in some cases, the companies that are, are more worried about their employees, whereas the cities are more worried about the citizens, but the rub comes down to the employees in a city that have to take, take care of the citizens. Interesting. I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought about that until you mentioned it. We're just not used to being in this situation where so much matters to, to so many people. I mean, literally everybody is involved in this and everybody's involved with very high stakes. And when you're involved in something where you experience the stakes as being very high, I mean, existentially high, you apply yourself in a way that you wouldn't normally, you might sit back and let other people do all the decision making, but people are really, uh, everything matters to everybody uh, right now. I mean, that's a bit of a glib thing to say, but uh, I think we genuinely have not been in a situation like this since the world war where so much matters to so many people all the time. And that has a, the effect of heightening the intensity of uh, decision-making, both at the personal household level and at the corporate and city management level. Um, yeah, so true. And, and continuing to also evolve at a rapid pace. I mean, I mean that, that's the other thing about all of this is the rapidity with which it's all happening. And I'm interested just on, on that note, Peter, to, to hear, how are you, are you seeing or hearing anything from these interviews? Some of the cities that were, that you're talking to, like they're, they're static, right? They're, they're, they're a city. They're, they're in one place. Mm -hmm. Companies have a footprint all over the world where in some parts of the world, the, the virus has kind of been beaten back and mm -hmm. in others just kind of erupting. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the approaches versus uh, kind of a global footprint versus a very specific geolocation? Well, it's interesting because um, you will have heard, I'm sure many people have heard these criticisms that are starting to surface about there not being a, a global response. This is a national, you know, nations are putting up their borders and dealing with the thing uh, at national level. And there's quite a lot of competition for resources between nations and so on. That's what's going on at the government level. In the business world, these multinational companies automatically deal with things in international ways. And I think that's going to show up over time as having quite an interesting effect on the way people in, in leadership positions in the private and public sector see what's going on. That the, I, I suppose what I'm really saying is I think the business community, because it's got such a globalized view of the world, uh, is in some respects in a better position to understand and move on this pandemic as it unfolds and we reopen and deal with what happens next than nation states, which are very inwardly focused, rightly so. But the organs of globalism, like the United Nations, are definitely in a weaker state than they might have been a decade or two ago. It's a fascinating point. And I, I love what you were just saying about kind of the intergovernmental organizations like the UN. Um, and we've been seeing the same issue play out around topics like climate change, where different levels of government other than other than national governments have been taking a lead on this. And 
Similarly, I think to your point, we're seeing the same thing now happening with companies to the, the exact issues you just raised. Companies now, especially big global ones, are coming to the forefront in terms of collaborating, providing solutions, and getting things done on the ground and in the face of, of COVID, where national governments have retreated back to a nationalist perspective. And it, there isn't a kind of a global response happening in, intergovernmentally, but there is in the corporate sector. It's, it's fascinating to see this new level of intergovernmental politics emerge and where the leaders are. So fascinating to hear from you, Peter, about all of this. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next time we chat to continue listening to you of what you're learning from, from talking to all these people dealing with this in, in real time. So thanks so much for all the Me stuff, too. the work you're doing, Peter. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, this is um, fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm enjoying it hugely, and I look forward to our, our next chat. You take care there. Thanks. Same to you, Peter. Speak next week. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, you've just heard a few of the insights that are emerging from this project. We think we've struck a rich vein of knowledge about what resilient leadership looks like in the real world of large organizations. Peter and his team will continue their interviews with our 10 decision makers every week, at least through early August. Insights from these weekly interviews will be on the project page every Tuesday, so be sure to check back in every week. You'll find the link to our project page in the notes below. We'll also look to post our next podcast episode soon with more insights and reflections from the process. While you're on our project page, please leave your thoughts on what's going through your mind as we make decisions during this crisis. We look forward to hearing and featuring some of your comments in one of our upcoming podcast episodes. On behalf of the project team and the Resilient Shift, thank you so much for listening and see you soon.